Hello, everyone. This is Ron Bush with Ron Bush Consulting, and you're watching or listening to The Information Playground. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a great program uh, prepared for you. You may be catching us in a variety of ways. Uh, I always like to start with WVLP. It's a great community radio station in Valparaiso, Indiana. Uh, WVLP has been around for oh, probably a decade now. They just do a great job and they're a great part of the community. Check them out at wvlp.org. You can either, if you're local, you can uh, tune us in at 103.1 FM on Monday mornings at 8 a.m. or Friday afternoons at 1 p.m. You can also stream us from wvlp.org and you can uh, do that same times or you can catch us on demand at any podcast. Uh, I know uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, all the podcast platforms I'm familiar with, we're on them. Uh, look for the Information Playground. Or you can catch us uh, on demand where you can see us on YouTube, all again under the Information Playground. So thank you for being with us. I'm Ron at ronbushconsulting.com and my company is ronbushconsulting.com. We're a cybersecurity consultant agency. We've got a good friend and a special guest with us this morning, uh, Mark. Uh, Mark York is a, is a founder and uh, uh, just a, a, a great guy. He's, uh, uh, he operates uh, a mass tort or a news, uh, it's a mass tort news organization. Uh, Mark, I'll ask if you tell the folks a little bit about yourself and about uh, mass tort news. Hi, um, my background is in uh, complex research and uh, analysis in various areas, primarily uh, you know, uh, medical activities, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, bad conduct more so than good conduct because that uh, seems to be where things have gone in the last few years, but also uh, in compliance issues, both corporate and federal regulatory, as well as um, pointing out some of the failings of how we could be better students of corporate uh, viability in the United States and around the world. So uh, as part of my uh, research and reporting and providing guidance to corporations and law firms at the white uh, C-suite level, definitely, but very a lot of white collar work there. And um, I started writing and then uh, people, I started writing and publishing some of these articles in media and white papers. And then it became known among uh, uh, billable hour people, lawyers, doctors, things like engineers, and then, so I decided to create Mass Tort News and MassTortNews.org and Dot Live, where we like right now Dot Live, MassTortNews.live is streaming uh, some of the opioid trials that are taking uh, place around the country, which we'll get into. Yeah. But uh, it's just a uh, a public uh, venture forum, so people can read easily and understand what's going on in areas where they generally nothing's explained clearly about the uh, regulatory compliance or lack thereof the process and just uh, things that might be helpful to someone at some point. Great. Regular <laughs> listeners, Paul and Mark, uh, you've been on before twice that I can remember. One was on the opioid, opioid epidemic, the other was on PFAS. And uh, both I found very instructional and educational and um, good remarks uh, back from. So um, let's talk about it. You're at a, a, a or you've been at a conference, and there's a lot of new things to share on opioid, the the uh, uh, epidemic that we've got in this country. Let's talk a little bit about that. 
Okay. Um, well, uh, the uh, opioid crisis, uh, everyone thought it had kind of come and gone and been, uh, you know, uh, addressed effectively, which was uh, always a false narrative from uh, the year 2000 to current, but more recently in, you know, 2017 to current, uh, the media and the attention span of the American consumer or the American media consumer was distracted by various goings on, primarily in the political world, which kind of we lost sight of what the issues were, uh, the real core issues. Uh, things are being addressed in the litigation, but as far as, you know, there, I'm interacting with people in the opioid crisis at a very high level at times, out, way outside of the lawyers. Uh, federal and state officials, and, and on the state level, it was often relayed that uh, the lack of federal guidance is one of the uh, inhibitors of more states becoming good stewards of their own citizens on getting effective treatment services. And um, there has been a sea change uh, since the new administration has come in on what is important for the government. Back at the beginning of the prior administration's uh, start, uh, there was something called the Opioid Crisis Commission. And uh, everyone was like, oh, uh, President Trump, um, he decided to create a commission because it was a, a tragic need. And uh, immediately it was suspect because uh, Kellyanne Conway was put in charge of it. No one, had a, no one with a medical degree or clinical background was uh, consulted. Uh, Chris Christie was involved peripherally. He was uh, one of the, I think he might even been the chair at one point. But, uh, you know, as a boots on the ground, uh, you know, national advisor for certain things, they needed people that were treatment savvy. That wasn't the case. And I believe Melania Trump, you know, all the best to her in whatever way. But she wasn't well suited to be involved in something as critical as that. That was, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been dying uh, annually from not just the overdoses, but all the peripheral issues. So they didn't have a good team to start with, and it didn't take many people in the treatment industry or in the governmental affairs around at the states like, well, let's just draw a line through help from the government for right now. And the federal guidance is very, very integral because that's where a lot of the money comes for these things. And along with that money, you usually want to have best practices guidance, and that was what was missing. And that's what we know for a fact has been missing for the last four years. That's definitely changed. There was a document released uh, April 1st, 2021 by uh, the White House. It was referred to as the Biden-Harris uh, ONDCP Office of National Drug Control Policy 2021 Agenda and Guidance. Best practices. Basically, it laid out what, uh, what were some of the key targets and agendas that were going to be followed. And uh, those agendas were absolutely oppositional to what had previously been offered out of ONDCP, which is the state agency, I'm sorry, the federal agency that's tasked with ensuring proper guidance and uh, formatting for addiction treatment services and things of that nature, as well as controlled substance activity, which are opioids. Mm -hmm. So there are many new things coming out of, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. that are looked at very favorably, the level of interaction between the federal entities and the states and things as, you know, more has been done 
in these short three or four months uh, since January, I think 26th or 20th, I don't remember exactly, but in that short period of time, more has been done than the previous four years as far as direct communications, as well as raising the hopes. And uh, there's no dreams here because this is, this is black and white stuff. It has to be done. But, you know, uh, the opioid litigation uh, apparently is going to have a, a fairly significant amount of abatement dollars. This money is not going to go to roads and bridges like tobacco litigation settlements. These are abatement dollars for treatment programs and are going to have specific criteria attached that you have to follow. But more importantly, the Biden administration has designated, and if anybody wants to look this up, they can go to Biden campaign, $120 billion for addiction or something along those lines. But Google it. Uh, there's going to be $120 billion coming that's going to, and it's not going to treat just opioid addiction. It, this goes across everything. Uh, racial equity, lack thereof. Criminal justice disparity, uh, which, are, which is you know, different from state to state. But, and many other access to treatment, which includes not only addiction services, but mental health care. That is a major contributor. People don't realize how closely tied mental health or lack of mental health resources and uh, treatment is tied to addiction, whether it's alcohol, cigarettes, Xanax, definitely opioids. People, you know, they need the, it, it, just that blinder or that dulling thing, something to get their mind off of what's going on. And whenever there's a mental health issue, that really compounds things. Yeah. So it's uh, it's all kind of uh, thrown into the mix there. Um, the uh, more recently, the uh, opioid litigation trials have started. I wrote an article recently at masstornews.org uh, regarding uh, the trifecta of opioid trials has arrived. And these are three different trials that are probably going to overlap. There is one pending right now in Orange County, California. It is the uh, Los Angeles County, Orange County, and uh, excuse me, I can't remember the third county, but it also is the city of Oakland, California. Those are that's about five, seven million people right there that are it were impacted. Those are that trial is ongoing and it has been for over a month. Great. It's going to be a very long trial. It's only three days a week. But if anybody wants to tune in, stream, watch the streaming of that trial, go to masstortnews.live and there's a button that says, you know, Click here and you're going to get right yeah. into that trial. Excellent. And yeah, uh, more recently, uh, starting about three weeks ago, the uh, second yeah. of the uh, opioid MDL 2804 federal, the big, what they're referring to kind of as the tobacco two model of litigation, uh, which are the municipalities and the states and the hospitals and unions against the various parties in the uh, big pharma chains. Um, that is taking place right now in Charleston, West Virginia. That's Cabell County and the city of Huntington, West Virginia. But that is a segmented trial. That is only against the drug distributors, McKesson Corp, Amergen Burgeon, and uh, there's, um, they're in Columbus, Ohio, I can't recall, uh, Cardinal Health, uh, sorry, and Cardinal Health. Um, that trial is a public nuisance trial in federal court. A judge, not a jury, as is the trial in California. That's a judge trial. So uh, that is kind of, those are, they're called bellwethers for a reason, but one's in state court, one's in federal court. 
those are going to be like taking the temperature of what's going to be seen as should we pay out now or run it down to the wire? But on another note, uh, right around June 15th to June 30th, depending on pretrial activity, there's a trial starting in uh, Suffolk County, New York, which is the state of New York. Letitia James, the attorney general, that's the entire state. But then the two most populous counties outside of New York City, which are Suffolk County and Nassau County, that's in state court. That trial will start. So chances are these trials are all three going to be overlapping. Yeah. If there's ever been, uh, you know, a, an incentive for a mass group of defendants to start thinking about how much is this going to cost us to settle and should we really start writing checks, I'm pretty sure that's going to be it. Some are going to want to gamble because there's just numerous Fortune 100 corporations here, some of the largest. I believe McKesson has a gross domestic product close to India or something. It's just some crazy figure. But those are just the things that are going on. And then on top of all that, uh, scheduled for early, late summer, early fall, is part two of the first bellwether trial in Cleveland, Ohio, where that's going to go back in front of the lead uh, MDL judge there, Judge Polster. That's going to be the pharmacies. So that's the CVSs and the Walgreens. They opted out of settling the first trial back in October 2018 or 2019. Maybe. Uh, that first trial, they decided they didn't want to settle along with Johnson and Johnson and Teva, and they, you know, held out. So there are going to be four trials in the space of six months that are probably going to have a uh, good, bad, or otherwise effect on what's going on in the opioid litigation. Now, I, I, the pharmacies held off because they can point the finger at the, the pharmaceuticals who much like uh, uh, what's the drug back in the 70s they said was not habit forming uh, or oh, uh, Valium Valium yeah and yes of course, they were I remember talking to one pharmacist who said back in the 70s he would he would fill prescriptions for 200 250 pills of Valium in one prescription yes it's incredible to me. And, you know, they never, to the best of my knowledge, pharmaceutical companies never had to pay for that, but it started our, if you will, our drug war. Yeah. And I don't know how aware, I, we might've touched on this before, but do you know who was the architect behind turning Valium for Hoffman LaRoche from a little tiny pill that was started like pill X to the blockbuster drug that it was? No. Richard Sackler and his brother, Mortimer, I believe his name was Mortimer, of the Sackler family, Purdue. They were the marketing team that came up with this concept of let's go global with this by going into the hospitals, to the doctors, to the treatment service providers. Let's frame the public opinion and agenda as this was just a normal, they treated it as a normal consumer product. So we didn't nice. stop them back then, and now we're dealing with them again. Yes, <clears throat> and, and what happened was in the mid, early to mid-90s, they bought Purdue Pharma. Well, they bought Purdue Frederick, which became a, part, a subsidiary of Purdue Frederick, and they started making OxyContin, which was oxycodone, and they just put a, a little delayed, they put a, a bit of wax or something on her, some candy, and it says, oh, it's delayed release and it won't, you know, it had the exact same bad stuff in it, you know, 
the uh, what do you what not Cody, but opium, the opiates that were in it, which is just heroin redone. It was in there. They knew it. They but they started a marketing campaign that influenced so many people, doctors. It went from you know it was it was a known fact in the medical world that uh, opioids were addictive. And they suppressed the science so much by getting, they created foundations and these other things. And they were extremely wealthy, so they could influence. They started putting in, you know, wings at hospitals. Whenever you start donating to the major medical schools, whether it's a foundation or funding research, people start getting a very, very favorable view of, what are, well, they're good people, so let's go along. The pain scale of one to 10, thank the Sacklers for it. That was a contrived little thing, either in emergency rooms or whatever. And it got to the point where they were like, pain prevention is more important than, you know, uh, what, acute pain prevention. They just got it to where, you know, oh, I, I sprained my ankle. Here, have some drugs. Yeah. And that's how that all came about. So going back to what we were talking about, the, the pharmacies, uh, regardless of who did what, in the food chain here of the opioid distribution, they all had a federal and state regulatory oversight reporting compliance required. They, that was their policy and procedure. The federal government had it, the state government had it. That whenever you know, noticed, you know, significant increase in spikes in sales in a certain region, you were supposed to report that. And, they, you know, the, I think, one city here got 6 million pills in, in West Virginia, 6 million pills in three months. Or some, I mean, it came out to like the total state got a billion or something, some obscene figure. Right. Anybody, there's only one, there's only 1,800,000 people in West Virginia. And if you do the math, the way that science is already known, there's only like 20% of those at any one time that would need, you know, opioid pain medication for whatever purposes. And then for catastrophic pain, which would have been the 40 milligrams and above of what Oxycontin was, that drops down to like 4 per 5% of the population. And they had enough stuff, they had enough uh, opioids in the mix here for years that would have, you know, given everybody 500 pills a year, something like that. And you so, see how that's led us down this road. It affects virtually everything. People are smuggling it across the border. Youth are overdosing on it. It's it's replaced uh, heroin, or excuse me, Harrison is re heroin has replaced it in some markets because heroin is cheaper now. Yes, it's just it, saying it's gone crazy and out of control doesn't do justice to it. Uh, well, one of the things is uh, you know you or I, and I'm going to be very blunt uh, about this. We could go buy a pill press. We can order it probably off of Amazon. And we could start making sugar tablets, or we could start, in which they do in places, they they start manufacturing face uh, counterfeit, Zan, uh, not Xanax, well, they do Xanax too, but uh, counterfeit uh, opioid, you know, drugs like uh, Oxycontin, et cetera. And you can't tell the difference truly because they all look exactly the same, but they are using fentanyl, and fentanyl is thousands of times stronger. So that's what, and so these kids don't know it and they're like, well, I, I've taken Oxycontin or, you know, adults too. And they'll take, uh, you know, two or three of them next, you know, they are, they're dead. And it's like, well, they weren't, shoot, you know, injecting drugs, but they were, they just didn't know they were doing it orally. Yeah. And uh, 
for years and years, uh, you could order 55 gallon drunk, well, you still can, of fentanyl from China, now India, but those can go to anywhere in South America where uh, there is lax import export duties and requirements. And, uh, you know, it's, I'd say, you know, the comparative is like in salt, it's like a, a, a 132nd of a teaspoon, if even that, of fentanyl equals like a teaspoon of what would be considered normal heroin or something like that. It's just like so much of a huge difference. So you can imagine a 55 gallon drum, and if you're importing hundreds of drums, they've just got it stacked in a way, and you don't know what it is, it just looks like blue, you know, blue barrels or something. So those are the things that are going on you know, internationally that are impacting things here. But the, the pharmacies, uh, they were thrown under the bus by the, rep uh, the lawyer in, uh, I watched that, the lawyer for, um, I believe it was Allergan Watson, and uh, um, stated that the pharmacies had the duty as licensed professionals. You know, that they were saying not to manufacturers. Well, the one thing is, uh, as I mentioned before, on our other, uh, how did the, who didn't notice, and this was the DEA's fault too, that whenever uh, Johnson & Johnson created the opioid farm, the, the poppy farm in Tasmania, for no other reason, climate in areas with similar to Afghanistan and other places where it grows, whenever they started moving from a ton, a quarter, to 10 tons and a quarter, no one, like, well, where's it going? It's not going to make silly putty. So those were things that were right on the radar of the DEA. First and foremost, they, they knew there's no way they cannot. I don't care what kind of rhetoric they throw off in court saying, we weren't reported. They... It's an import thing. You know, how just like they interdict marijuana, uh, methamphetamine or everything, they're on the lookout for it. This is so white collar crime. I live across the border now, or not mm -hmm. across the border, but close to the border. Mm -hmm. And they're on the local news, there's hardly a day that goes by. They haven't found people being smuggled in or fentanyl or some other drug, meth. Yeah. Just about everything tries to get smuggled in. There's you know, there's several things you wonder. I don't see that on the, the, the national news. I only see it on the local. Um, the, you have to wonder how much of this stuff has really happened. When I start to go down the road on, on, uh, on politics, uh, you know, federal uh, um, relationships with other countries, how much of that's dictated by this stuff? And, you know, what's all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, behind the curtain? I, it just, first, it makes me angry. <laughs> and then sure. it, it makes me wonder how much of this stuff do I not know? I know enough to make me angry. What, how much of it don't I know, though? Sure. Well, well I mean, uh, there's two class. I, 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 there are two distinct classifications here. There is um, blue collar drug interdiction. That's the mule running something across the Rio Grande, things like that, or the tunnels. That's very blue collars. Then there is white collar interdiction. White collar interdiction is where uh, the uh, diversion of the pills mm -hmm. and or the noticing that the catastrophic increases on the amount of raw opium imported in the country have like become obscene. Yeah. But there was no white collar interdiction because it's perceived as almost like, well, those people don't do that bad stuff. 
it, it's just those other people. Yeah. Man, did we, I mean, what did we get? We got hit upside the head with a giant opioid pill that said, oh, yeah, go tell the 750,000 people that have died of overdoses. Yeah. Things like that, or the job, the jobs, it's billions and billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. If you go back to 1999, whenever it all started. So there are uh, you know, legacy issues, which are kind of, uh, you know, there's photo ops. They're like, oh yeah, you know, we have addicts and the people doing this and that, we'll get them treatment. We'll get beds for them. We'll give them 30 days of treatment and then kick them out. That does absolutely nothing for 75 or 80% of the people with addiction. There's underlying issues and criteria that have caused the addiction. Some are genetically predisposed to addiction, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, they just get that thing going. But uh, those, you know, there's a way to address some of those things, the clinical side of things. But there's a lot of uh, disparity on how treatment is viewed from state to state even. So, there's just, and it goes back to uh, uh, I, the cause and effect. You know, the cause was the uh, pharmaceutical, the pharmacies, the distributors, the et cetera, the importers of the products and the people that put them into the consumer marketplace by manipulating professional and, and uh, consumer views on opioids were responsible. And the effect was there are now a catastrophically like, you know, a wide rip across the society of the United States. And I'm not being dramatic because if you knew how many grandparents or aunts and uncles were raising kids that for no other reason, it is a dramatic emergency necessity because both parents had died or the kids were taken away. They're in foster care, foster care in the United States. I don't care. I especially like North, you know, nothing against Northwest Indiana per se, but their, you know, DCFS is so overtaxed and it has been forever. That's just not a good environment. And that's the only alternative that there are for many of these kids whenever they're, they're taken away from their parents. They got to go into the system. And so that, that's just a whole underbelly of the nasty, not good to look at. While the Sacklers are saying up here, well, we... We donated. We donated a wing over at the Smithsonian Institute. I drove by it the other day. Yeah. I was looking at the Smithsonian. It's like Sackler, Richard J. Sackler, or something like that. I was like, wow, you know, that's nice. But it's all nice and fuzzy if you're talking about a photo op on Bloomberg or NBC. Go talk to a kid that's nine years old that hasn't seen a parent or anybody for a year because your parents can't get off of the drugs and the state won't fund it because the state doesn't have guidance from federal government. So there's a weird loop there that can all be tied together on a string. Sometimes I wonder if we have any systems that are not broken, whether you're talking immigration or you're talking family uh, support, no matter what you talk about in this country, it all seems to be broken. Um, let's, let's talk about, since we've gone through this year plus of, uh, of the pandemic, how has, has uh, COVID impacted all of this? Uh, dramatically in a negative sense. Some states have seen 50% increases in overdose. In a, on a mental health side, there are people that uh, are just, you know, at their wits end because first job losses or you know, uh, continuity of their lifestyle, that causes people to get anxious, very anxious in some cases, that causes the same thing what we just talked about. 
they reach for alcohol, a drug or something like that. Some people can't sleep, you know, the, all of those things. So, it, and just the lack of resources devoted to the in need, because first nobody knew because everybody was hiding in their house thinking if they walked outside, they were going to get sick and die. And that also goes back to the failed messaging of Washington, D.C. on down. I don't know if you noticed it, how states kind of took over, but counties, they kind of took over the enforcement and the informational data gathering. It wasn't, I think it was like four months into the COVID process last year that uh, CDC, the reporting mechanism uh, from all the state departments of health around the country, the COVID reporting data, science and everything was removed from direct report to CDC, HHS, CDC, and uh, steered into the White House. That was a threat. That that would be a, a negligent failure thing that would cause a lawsuit in any other way. And then that's whenever you had guys like that. I can't remember his first name. Robert Richard Atlas. I know his name was Atlas. That was there's no such thing as COVID, and he was like basically directing traffic to suppress the science and the and the true data coming in. Fauci did as well as he could, but he, you know, he was like, oh, mask, do this, do that. But you had so many different people saying so many different things. And our president was like, drink some Clorox yeah. or whatever the oddity said he, and he did have some pretty radical things yeah. going out there. He had a what sense of humor. I think he was trying to make a joke. I don't know. It could, it could have been, but if he, it, all he had, all he would have had to have done was like, I'm joking or, you know, it, it always comes a time whenever you're the coach of a team to like, you know what? I played left field and I can catch and throw, but I don't know a thing about batting. Yeah. Maybe I'll get a batting coach in. Yeah. He had those at his disposal, or I should say this, the administration. Donald Trump had a lot of people around him that were whispering secrets to him that he was following along with. So his it's the fault of his advisors. Truthfully, if it comes to, you know, you know, it, it was his, you know, his catcher, his pitcher, his first and second base team and his strategy people. But we just didn't get that message out there. And then that just started that catastrophic slide. Then they tried throwing money at it. And uh, like whenever you said the failures of systems and, poly, you know, all of these, what isn't broken? And whenever you just monetize, whenever you start monetizing a failed model, whether it's addiction treatment economic development, hospital, healthcare, you just get a, you just have a monetized failed model. Yeah. And um, there and are- our culture, our culture has added to that. Who came yes. up with the, uh, with the saying that uh, it shouldn't hurt or there should be no pain. You should not experience pain. I've been to chiropractors and had them tell me that. And I've been to, to dentists and had them tell me that. Well, right. I don't want to surprise anyone, but life is full of pain. <laughs> life yes. is all about pain. And uh, maybe I'm a contrarian at heart, but I don't buy that. And I never have. Right. Maybe that's kept me out of the, the uh, uh, off the rolls of the folks that suffer trying to avoid it. You cannot avoid pain. It's, right. it's a part it, of life. Well, one thing, the license, the, the, the doctors, the dentists and the others, they, it's not that they got a, they get or got a get out of jail free card. But their guidance, they take, whenever I say that federal best practices guidance, for them, it's like the FDA. If it's a drug that you can write a prescription for, and you're within the guidelines of what the prescribing practices are, 
you can write prescriptions as often as you want. But the issue becomes whenever someone like the Sacklers have moved the needle to open up in a liberal sense yeah. of what the prescribing criteria and practices are to make it like a sprained ankle and you get 30, uh, you know, 30 Oxycontin 40 milligram refilled three times, right. you know, <clears throat> for, I think it's like 6% of the population are, would have a tendency to, maybe it's 3%, I'm not exactly sure, but after that first 30 days, they are, they can be addicted. And sometimes it is like after seven days. Because first, there's that euphoric sense that you get from these things. And it's like, oh, this is good. And then, you know, that kind of wears off because your body transitions to be addicted. But they just changed everything to where it was just like a minimal criteria to write the prescription. So the doctors and the chiropractors and everybody else was like, yeah, we can do this. Or, you know, we could, it's, it's fine because they say, you know, whoever they are, we don't know for sure. But it was, a, you know, it was a, a verified model that, was used again and it didn't take long for the rest of i refer to it as opioid big pharma and others to realize why they're making three billion dollars a year over there and all they're doing is selling real little round pills yeah. maybe we should get into that and they did i mean everybody started getting into it because they started sending their you got to remember doctors their main mechanism for a blockbuster drug or a new thing is to get out send their sales reps out with the uh, boxes of donuts and the sports tickets and saying, hey, Zeralto is the best blood thinner that's out there or back in the day, uh, valuable, awesome. <laughs> you should prescribe them because they, they make your problems go away. So it's just, it's a marketing campaign quite a bit. So now we end up with, there's a lot of people that have lost loved ones, lost jobs. And, and it, with COVID specifically, people didn't even go to their doctors. And some states have uh, restricted the opioid prescribing requirements that uh, you have to go in to see a doctor and every refill you need to see a doctor and some will only give you three or four days worth. And if you can't go out of your house and medical offices were closed, there's telehealth and telemedicine. So there is just, you know, it's just a moving target all the time and COVID just kind of threw a wrench right in the middle of whatever forward movement was going on. States were still meeting and talking as a group through the National Governors Association. They're very proactive, what they were doing. But uh, that's whenever federal, you know, big brother, federal government should have stepped in and said, all right, you know, we can have Zoom meetings and we'll start doing this. That was not happening. So in the middle of COVID with everything and uh, there, and now it's almost like it's re-embedded that there are legacy issues that are going to have to be kind of like scrubbed and cleaned and triaged over the, the back steps of the last, you know, almost year and a half. I'm going to pause this here so I can uh, do a, a station identification and just remind folks who they're listening to. Uh, and then we'll come back to where we left off. I, I, you know, we talked earlier about uh, youth um, addictions. Uh, I want to talk about seniors and, uh, and racial equity as well. All of that figures into this. But let's first, let me remind folks, you can be listening to us in a variety of ways. Uh, first off, I want to uh, uh, endorse or, or point you towards WVLP 
It's an excellent community radio station located in Valparaiso, Indiana. If you're there, catch us on Monday mornings at 8 a.m. or uh, Friday afternoons at 1 p.m. Uh, it's 103.1 FM, or I encourage you to stream us wherever you are at those times uh, at WVLP.org. If you need to listen to us on demand or you want to repeat this at any time that's convenient for you, on the podcast level, it's just about any podcast platform I know of. In fact, it is every podcast platform I know of. Uh, and just look for The Information Playground. I'm Ron Bush with Ron Bush Consulting, and so you'll find my name attached to it as well. You can also find us on YouTube where you get to look at a, at a very snazzy Mark York today and myself, uh, not so snazzy, but uh, YouTube, the, the channel again is The Information Playground. I'm gonna do a, a, a little uh, selfless, selfish plug here and hold up my book, uh, Staying Safe in a Very Dangerous World. Think before you click, I'm talking about cybercrime and how dangerous things are. And those systems are broken too, as regular listeners will know. Today, we're talking with Mark York, uh, uh, founder of uh, Mass Tort News Org. Uh, it is just an excellent website. MassTortNews.org is the website. He's got some others. Mark, if you will, tell people how to reach you or find you. And oh, sure. Again, I'm grateful that you're, uh, you're with us today. We're talking about a timely subject and, uh, and one that I want listeners to be better prepared for and know what to do. Sure. Um, you can reach me at uh, mark at masstortnews.org. Pretty straightforward. Uh, the sites are masstortnews.org or masstortnews.live. And um, you can just or just type Mark York opioids and usually <laughs> something will pop up there. That's one of the ways. Uh, yeah, you know. Because you've written so much on it, not because you take them. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So we were just talking about the, the impact that uh, COVID's had. Let's talk a little bit. We've got three main groups that always seem, I, I think when you and I were talking earlier, they always get the back seat. Yes. Uh, youth, seniors, and racial uh, minority. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, let's start with youth. Okay. Where are they in this, in this quagmire that we've got and how has COVID affected them and and I always like to end positive. What can what can we do about all this stuff? So, if you want to save that for the end, that's great. Or if there's a different no, right now, it's fine. Okay. All right. Uh, well, uh, the youth. I mean, the youth are at risk in this world uh, by they're bombarded with electronic media messaging everywhere they go. Everything it looks like is right there. That silver silver ring or the clothes, shoes, whatever. It's like everything is right there. So they, in addiction in general, they, a perfect example is tobacco. Tobacco doesn't start whenever you turn 18 or 21, you start smoking. Normally your hardcore smokers are 14, 15. And then whenever you get 16, 17, 18, life gets involved and you either are like, ah, I got to go do this over here and I can't smoke and do that, or, or all you become occupied, your mind becomes occupied. And you, but there are a vast, vast number of kids that are just like they start smoking. And by the time they're 21, they are smoking. It, that's just the risk assessment that's been ignored in for forever about kids at school and, everything, and peer pressure. The same thing with addiction and opioid risks, which also dovetails into that mental health aspect. 
and the bad home life and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that because the, uh, you know, the, the opioids were imported by big pharma and this, and the kids got a bad home life, he became an addict. But there are ways that we could, we could have, or we could have mitigated the risk to our, to young Americans in school. And I don't mean dare, you know, which many people equate dare with the school cop and you're, you know, you get caught smoking a cigarette, you're really in for it. That, you know, so it became a suppressive thing. It was like you hide it. It became a, you know, a Cheech and Chong versus those guys, you know, that kind of, you know, people, the levity crept into it, but it was, you know, people, especially after the ni 1999, 2000, whenever it was a known issue and risk, but people just didn't see it as that. So it became a, now it is something that is being recognized boldly that there is a risk of, uh, you know, uh, influences for kids and it needs to be addressed in some positive way. Not saying it's bad, the stigma of addiction rehab or requesting help for any type of what would you would call an adverse event regarding substance use disorder or use of a bad thing. The stigma of asking for help is so bad that people just they're like either embarrassed or they just don't want to get it. That's the messaging. You know, Richard Sackler should like re-engineer a way to do the mental health aspect, what he did before and change the dynamic of looking at it. It is generally a disease. It's peer influence and things like that, especially for kids. Kids should have a toll-free number at a school that they could call. I mean, a state should sponsor it and have it hung up in the bathroom walls, everywhere else. You need help, mental health, addiction, something like that. Call this number and talk to someone. It couldn't cost any more than some of the crazy stuff that are being paid for around here. But so as part of that, there are there have been some groups and some foundations and others, some serious groups uh, that are involved in addiction and treatment and mental health awareness that have kind of joined together to get these things going. Uh, the conference you mentioned earlier was, uh, it's referred to as WV Game Changer, which is the West Virginia Game Changer. It's an alliance of uh, like-minded people with some key people here in West Virginia, where I'm still at right now. I'm right outside of Charleston, uh, where they came together and they decided that they were going to empower kids and the teachers and the schools to kind of help develop a messaging and a platform to get rid of the stigma and also just like do positive things that are not necessarily related to the addiction side of things. And it could be smoking or anything else, but there is a group called BAR, B-A-R-R, -R, which is Building Assets, Reducing Risks, which they are already around the country in schools helping out. They're part of the uh, Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation, which everybody knows what that is. <clears throat> and they are very dynamic in their thinking, and they're working with some of the state leaders and business, some influential people here in West Virginia to embed that thinking about how to get things out to the kids that shows that, hey, you are not alone, regardless if you happen to be in foster care or you're just having a bad time, or just a kid that just might want to, you know, talk to someone or anything. And it's not psychological peer to peer, you know, you got to sit down and counseling. It's nothing like that. It is a, an enabling program that helps. It, it shapes healthy students. It, they're targeting prevention priorities and things like that. And um, 
the incoming CEO, I mean, I spent time this week with the incoming CEO, uh, Joe Lee of Hazelden Betty Ford, Emily Piper, who's one of their strategic guidance people and some of their, uh, Nick Moto, who's their uh, governmental affairs person. We, we talked at length about these issues. And whenever you have that kind of engagement of their kind of their executive think tank here in West Virginia at the Greenbrier, along with there was uh, Joe Bozek, who was the founder of Game Changers, he's a prominent businessman, well connected. He's decided to devote you know everything into getting this program up and going in the schools. The West Virginia schools, many of them are, are participating. A couple of them have been involved in the bar. Uh, group practice area for about three years and the numbers the catastrophic increase is of failures and grade increases is just something that can't be argued with so that shows whenever all these key people decide to come together things will happen uh university of alabama and uh coach nick saban was here two nights ago he spoke and he was very clear that you know he's from west virginia him and joe manchin spoke uh, one right after the other, Senator. They grew up here very close together in a very small town. Basically, they were not, they did not have the privileged life that many would think, et cetera. But they saw, and this is their home, and they know exactly what ground zero of the opioid crisis is. Yeah. Governor Jim Justice, who happens to also be the proprietor of the Greenbrier Resort, was there and he spoke and he was very clear and direct. He's like, hey, this this is a common cause that politics go out the window. Bipartisan support is required. And, you know, everyone has their own specific criteria and needs, contrived agendas. You throw that out the window if you're working to make the, the schools seem like a safe place. Because for a lot of people, that's where they're at most of the time, where there is kind of a, a safety net if there is something, whether it's for food, warmth, security, you know. There's a there's a lot of things that can be offered there. If just it depends on how what the delivery mechanism is, and all these people there were 400 people in this ballroom the other night, um, and they basically said, yeah, we are here. We want to get this moving forward. That was the easy part. It was simple for me to go there and see, uh, you know, be dazzled by all these celebrities and this and that, and and for everybody else that was there. Now in three months. Uh, you know, the, the tail of the tape is going to be, okay, let, where are we at? Have we moved this ahead in three months? Has everybody stayed on task? And of course, that's always down to that critical strategic thinking group in the middle. And from what I could see there, that, you know, the Betty Ford group is fully engaged. I'm going to be, I know uh, Joe Bozek for sure. Kimberly Brown, who is with Lightstream Consulting Group, she is definitely engaged with it. And so are, you know, the support is definitely there from Governor Justice, Senator Manchin, and others. So we just have to, you know, uh, keep that part moving forward. And hopefully this is a national model that can be rolled out and shown, hey, West Virginia is opioid ground zero. And this is what we've done here. Why don't you take a look at this as a model? And that's what, you know, we're, we're hoping to, to look at. It's great. You know, yeah. just to compare the two states, and I mentioned cybersecurity earlier, um, it seems to me like Indiana is really progressive, much the same way on cybersecurity. The governor's uh, council on that, um, can't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but he's he's been very aggressive in making Indiana the, the, 
the bellwether state, if you will, for educating people and developing cybersecurity resources. It's taught in the, in the universities and colleges. I mean, he's really done a great job. I have a feeling that, that Governor Justice is doing the same. And of course, all these other people are part of it. It never falls to one person. But they're all, that West Virginia is going to be doing the same for the opioid epidemic, or yeah, epidemic. And I sure hope so. Yes. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about seniors. Um, yeah. You know, as this stuff gets a little grayer, I, I'm starting to look at that uh, a little uh, closer than I used to. How do they rate as far as groups? Okay. Well, uh, in the in the the big picture of opioid life and at risk, if you look at it, uh, I think outside the box and I look, you know, I put everything in a box and I look at it from outside and I put society and the levels there into that box. And there are always three groups that are uh, generally at risk and the, the, the fourth, there is a fourth one, kind of but the young who are faultless, they are, you know, that's just a unique animal in addiction and issues and the and all the, the potential where it goes to as they grow up that has not been focused on enough, which needs to be. Then there are the middle ground, that's the kids in school, which they are under the control of the government, whether you say or not. I don't care what anyone says. School system is the government, you know, indoctrination, whatever you want to say, they're there. Then the other, well, there is the group of what we'll just say is 30 years old to about 55 to 60. Those people are the functional adults. We'll call them the, the okay, like-minded. They're much more capable of fending for themselves than anybody. So we're going to put like a, an X over them for now. But then there's the seniors. So the, the at-risk and overlooked groups are the seniors, the young, young infants, you know, zero to four years old. And then um, you, so, and then there's kids in school. And that, that's the peer influence part. So looking at the seniors, um, they are got to remember if the opioid crisis is um, since since 20, well, the year 2000, it's 20 years old. Those people that are now hitting 60 were 40. So they were in their prime as adults. So they, you know, those things are, and those are legacy adverse events and issues that they're, that are going along with them. So, and they don't have a mechanism to, I mean, they can, look up something, you know, they can look up addiction services, but the, by and large, the messaging, the, the public service announcements geared towards them through AARP or anybody else, you don't see that putting in there. You see new insurance or you see, you know, get your new dentures. You know, those are just the bear, those are the middle of the road thing, but no one wants to like hit on the hard hit stuff or even so much as uh, systems that will provide guidance and support because they're raising, you know, 80-year-old grandparents are raising four and five-year-olds. They don't know what to do, and there is no model for it, that's for sure. I mean, you know, some of the older grandparents, they were from a different era. They know how to, you know, conduct themselves as a family and things, but is that something that should be placed upon them, and should they have some help? There's a group called Grand Families that we're trying to form it into a little bit more substantial of an entity, as well as working with some states and others about getting that recognized as a, as a functional thought, you know, grand families, because there's a lot of them there. It's just like Northwest Indiana. I know that is a big, big, big issue of grandparents raising kids. So 
getting them the guidance or the resources of where to go to get help with all this money that's going to be coming in for addiction abatement, that just making sure that all those outside the box places and things are put in there. Now, going into one of the next things that we had touched on was racial equity and lack thereof and the stigma attached to addressing it. And I don't mean and I have to be very careful how I frame this. I don't mean the BLM side and the, the other you know, racial craziness that's going on. I mean, just truly across the board where minorities in the racial, the attempt to get racial equity, uh, if you are in certain, some of these boxes, like especially rural, the, the two big boxes are, if you're rural in any one of those three subject areas or, uh, major big city urban, you generally are already far behind that middle of middle America and that, you know, 30 to 55, 60 year old group because they're more self-sufficient. But, you know, the young kids in the urban or rural areas, the seniors in the rural or urban areas, and then if you add in the other dynamic of being a minority, you really, honestly, and this is just a fact of life, you don't, you know, things are just not set up in your, I don't want to say in your favor, but just the uh, the availability of resources as an open book and just, you know, are not always there. And the message of delivery to those people on how to go about getting those services doesn't seem to have as much priority in one way or another which also does tail into the other thing, which is the criminal justice and lack thereof in certain people, places, and things. And uh, I've noticed that over the last year, there has been, no, uh, let's say the last two years, but there has been a pretty significant number of uh, prisoners who they have found out were been in jail for 20 or 30 years that were like, should never have been there in the first place, that it was it was a basically, uh, you know, sham trial set up, false, false evidence, false testimony by police, prosecuted. Everyone knew about all of these things. And unfortunately, not, I, I'm comfortable saying 90% of those are African-American men. So criminal justice inequity is prevalent. And it's just that's because that's the embedded mannerisms of things. Um People go, going back, people are like, well, you know, they say uh, being prejudicial or discrimination is, uh, that, that's a, a, a learned thing, or you just are like that. No, not really. And the best way I could put this is using a college football comparison. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of the Ohio State, Michigan, University of Michigan at odds. I was born in Ohio. To make it as clear as possible day, for the time I can ever remember, Michigan was bad. Those were, they just like, you know, you thought of Michigan by the time you were 12 years old, it was like, geez, that's like Russia. That's Soviet, that's the Soviet Union. And that is what was embedded. Whether it was Woody Hayes, it was the football coach at school, it was everybody, uh, your relatives. So by the time you you start in your formative years and you get up, you know, here I was 20 years old up in Chicago. I was like, well, Michigan's not good. Still. <laughs> I, you know, I had no, no reason to ever change my mind because I just never thought about it because it was embedded in my brain from the time I was a kid. You can insert anything else, you know, nationalism or racial 
you know, uh, divisive ideas like that. And, you know, if you start, yeah, whenever they start hearing it, it takes maybe a, a hit in the side of the head to like, well, that's just not right. But, uh, you know, but it still goes, you know, on in, a, in our adult world all, every day. But that's a good, easy kind of weird way to show how it comes about. So uh, uh, the racial equity, and I do know this out of the federal government, is going to be a major, major significant portion. I happen to have the distinct pleasure of having worked with uh, Ron Flagg, who is now the president of Legal Services Corporation, which is the primary funding mechanism through Congress for legal aid across the country. And if there's ever been a group that is attempting to make a difference in the civil as well as the criminal justice and you know the makeup of how things can be helped, changed, or otherwise, that's the group. And I'm just glad I definitely, I usually don't mention someone like that, but they are very, very positive uh, group that's looking to make a change. And they're right in the middle of the family, you know, children, DCFS stuff. And, you know, sometimes just getting a driver's license back for someone that's had opioid addictions or have been in prison thing. Those are the things that are really, that is the uh, inequitable conduct of our embedded criminal justice and civil justice system whether it's you know over at the DMV or anywhere, they just don't cut anybody any slack. Whenever some things are just you know you know like all the people we just touched on that have been in prison forever. If you just went by the black and white on their record, they were like, oh, they were in prison for murder. No one's going to look into the you know the biographical part that's down at the footnote. It's going to be like, oh, you're in prison. you don't get you don't get a job or you don't get that because they're going to do a background check or something. Those those types of things are our society. Yeah. Now we can uh, we can investigate and and free people that were wrongly accused. I'm sure we're missing quite a few. A gentleman yes. just, I think it was last week, 25 years in prison, uh, had claimed he had not done it. I can't remember if they'd gotten a false confession out of out of him or not, but those are are pretty common. Um, there's a there's a book uh, a play on uh, on you have the right to remain silent. The name of this book it's written by an attorney called You Have the Right to Remain Innocent, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he talks in there a lot about uh, saying anything that can be turned around and used against you, whether it's before you know Miranda or after doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's watching what you say and who you say it to, and uh, so it, it, when we talk about racial things, senior, you, uh, you're right. Those are three major, major groups, or I agree with you. Uh, anyway, it, uh, those are th three major uh, groups. I didn't think about the difference. Urban automatically comes to mind. News seems to center there. But you're right, rural. I, I hadn't thought about that before. I also, I, I've got to assume, since you talked about it, Michigan isn't bad. I didn't know that. I thought that, no, that's <laughs> so uh, I probably, if I've got listeners in, in, in Michigan, I probably just made enemies, but I, I, you know, I'm just kidding. So let's, uh, let's wrap this up. What can, what can you and me and, and everybody listening to this, how can we be involved? How can we help move things forward? We can't let things stay the way they are and we can't let them keep getting worse. What can we do? Right. 
Uh, well, I mean, it, I think it is changing, the, well, in various areas, changing the attitudes of how anything addiction-related, oftentimes it, there is a whole mental health component that's underlying there. Just like veterans are now seen as the reason veterans sometimes are more in need, it's often PTSD and all the peripheral. That's, men, that's mental. That's, you know, it, the embodiment of the whole person as to why. And uh, on the racial equity, attempting to secure racial, equi racial equalization as a normal thing is uh, one of the fundamentals. I mean, we just went through four years of where it was, you know, that nationalism and all that goes along with it card was played extensively by people that had contrived agendas, which the old divide and conquer, you know, you can go back to uh, ancient Rome and, and just read the playbook of how that was used. And it's been used again and again and again. But, you know, people just weren't, were, were not suspect of it because they had no frame of comparative reference in the United States. We were all baseball, hot dogs, Chevys, and apple pie. And salute the flag and all that. Well, now every, that's all, everything now is like, oh, geez, who knows what's coming. So just understanding that, uh, you know, life is going to go on. Like everyone thought that, uh, you know, everything was going to end uh, back in, uh, you know, whenever Trump left and there was going to be wars. And this, that's just rhetoric and that's just manipulated media. Getting to know that there are people there are kids that, here's one of the clear things. There are kids that are hungry. There are elderly that are hungry. There are, you know, single women with kids don't have food. That should be, and, and whenever I say, like when you touched on the rural areas, there are parts of this country in Appalachia and, and also right where you're at, everywhere else, but much more extensively where there are entire segments that are um, underprivileged in food, heating and everything, but definitely food. I mean, whenever there's kids in America that don't have food, that's where anybody that would hear this or anybody, any civilized human being, no matter what your persuasion, sexually, religiously, or politically, if you're okay with having a kid go hungry, then, you know, you're not right. That's just, there's no two ways about it. So those are the types of things to just understanding uh, what's going on with your neighbor or other people in your town or, or, or area and just maybe just, you know, turn the other cheek whenever you're not happy about it versus getting all radical. I'm going to point people to Hazelton Betty Ford. That's H-A-Z-E-L-D-E-N, I believe. Yes. Uh, Betty, B-E-T-T-Y, Ford. Uh, pretty easy to spell, so I won't do that. Uh, 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 encourage you to check out that website. There's a, an article in uh, uh, the Atlantic someone sent me earlier today on um, uh, deinstitutionalizing, going back 50, 70 years where uh, we've, we've gone through periods of, of uh, letting the, the, uh, uh, the mentally challenged out uh, of institutions and closing asylums. Uh, now they, they uh, populate the prisons uh, to a great degree. The article does a good job of, of, uh, of, of pointing out it isn't just an A equals B type thing. There's a lot more things in, in play there. Uh, there's just so many needs and so many things. I encourage everyone listening or watching to us today, get involved. Start educating yourself on all of this. And this is an excellent start. Mark, you know, always know more about this stuff. Than I ever thought of. I do a little reading, and I think I've, I've got a grasp of it. And then you come through with people, and 
and legislation and things I wouldn't have even thought to go through. So thank you for being on today. Sure, thank you. It's always good to be here. I've got like a minute, so I'm gonna wrap up real fast, folks. I'm Ron Bush with Ron Bush Consulting. If you've got questions on the program, ron at ronbushconsulting.com. Uh, check out WVLP, WVLP.org, info at WVLP.org. We'll get you to the station manager, a real nice guy, Greg Kovich. Uh, Mark, uh, people should go to masstortnews.org. It's an mm -hmm. excellent website, and I don't have the others in front of me, so I'm going to leave it at that. I'm down to seconds. So okay, thank you, everyone. Ron. With us. Thank you, Mark. Okay, Ron. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.